Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. This episode is a part of a live recording for our Neuroacademy community, and the topic of the discussion is the genetics of Alzheimer's disease, in particular, a deep dive into apolipoprotein E4 or ApoE4 gene, which is the most influential genetic risk factor associated with late-onset Alzheimer's disease. We describe the evolutionary aspects of apolipoproteins, how they're produced, how the different isoforms of ApoE influence the different factors leading to Alzheimer's disease, how it affects lipid metabolism and immune function in the brain, and what is the latest evidence on the epigenetics of ApoE4. Typically, the community members post their questions ahead of time, and we structure the conversation in a way to address their questions. And we also answer their questions live during the recording. Now, before we jump into the conversation, a little bit about Neuroacademy. Neuroacademy is a membership-based online community with over 700 active members with resources to achieve optimal brain health, better cognition, and prevent cognitive decline. The platform provides the opportunity to connect with us and an empowering community and participate in weekly live Q&A sessions, education on evidence-based nutrition and other lifestyle factors, live cooking demonstrations, live podcasts and Q&A with remarkable health leaders, interest groups, book clubs, science club discussions, access to on-demand courses on prevention of neurological diseases, evidence-based nutrition and cooking, behavioral science, and many other topics related to brain health. Members can receive CE or CME credits and certification after taking the courses. Join us by visiting neuroacademy.com. Now let's dive into the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. We'll start with this whole concept, and most of you know about this, but I want to kind of summarize and give you a heads up as far as the genetics of uh, dementia and Alzheimer's in particular and other diseases. All diseases have genetic components. I want people to know that. that uh, and by genetics, what we mean is the kind of factors that make the likelihood of a disease becoming more prevalent or more uh, uh, increasing the risk of the disease, either directly or indirectly. Directly means that the gene is directly causing a genetic a, a, a process that leads to an outcome, like Huntington's disease. There's a, a locus on chromosome four that's aberrant, abnormal, and it creates this repeats, CAG repeats. CAG, each of those letters stand for um, um, particular gene, gene codes. For those of you who know or don't know, <clears throat> the way it works, genes have these uh, CA, you know, uh, uh, cytosine, uh, adenine, guanine, and thymine. Um, that's the DNA. And those patterns alternate, change. It's CAG, CA, you know, uh, and, and so on and so forth. And each of those codons, those three letters, actually gets transcribed into M uh, uh, RNA, and then, then RNA is created, uh, transcribed into amino acids. And each of those codons spe specifically mean a particular thing as far as protein outcome. With Huntington's disease, What's interesting is that that one element, one, one locus in the gene creates the CAG repeats, which then becomes toxic and, and creates an incredible downstream destruction in the brain, which starts with some behavioral disorders, 
But by the time we see the patient, if they haven't figured out the genetic component early on, by the time we find out, it's the brain has been devastated. We, I mean, big holes, big holes. You see shrinkage, all kinds of stuff. And from behavior, then it becomes abnormal movements with this dystonias and dyskinesias. And then from there, it's uh, for dementia and death. Very rapidly in their 30s and, and definitely by early 40s. And there are a lot of other diseases like that, single focus gene effect. And that's a direct damage as a result of that gene. Others cause damage because they have abnormal function as far as its response to inflammation or not too much or not, not enough inflammatory response in disease process or too much inflammatory response, which is the autoimmune diseases. And I'm simplifying that. Or getting rid of waste in the body. Yep. You know, that's a big problem. Getting rid of waste, and we'll have a whole conversation about that. And one of the only ways that we know that aging is, is reduced is by not creating enough waste, either by not eating in a lot, which, which is the only thing that we have found that, that re- slows down aging, which is a calorie deficit. Or if you're going to eat, eat the kind of food that doesn't create a lot of waste products because of its toxicity, uh, abnormality, or because it doesn't have a lot of burn. Um, and so inflammatory problems. Um, and then the other one is lipids. So when you look at the Alzheimer's spectrum of, of how the disease happens, the gene-driven component, which means the gene is causing the outcome, and that's the whole amyloid hypothesis came from that, is only 3%, 3 to 4% of the disease. There are three genes that are driven by, um, by that kind of, or cause that kind of a problem, a presenilin one presenilin 2 and an APP. And the reason is there the the this normal transmembrane protein, which traverses the membrane, is cut in the wrong place and it creates amyloid, right? And then downstream it creates tau, and and or is, uh, consequently um, is, there's tau pro- production as well, and that creates toxicity and damage and inflammation and too much inflammation, and the whole cascade follows. Now, that's only 3 to 4%. What about the rest? The rest are those other kind of genes, which is lifestyle stuff factors, which is your inflammation, inflammatory response is not as good. Right. Or you can't get rid of the waste, or you can't get a, a deal with a glucose metabolism very well, um, or, or methylation and glycosylation, which is an aging process, is affected in different levels. We all have deficits in our gene responses, and in the future, maybe we'll be able to do something about it. But right now, what will affect that is our lifestyle in a very blunt, subtle way. The biggest one of those is APOE4. That's right. Yes. And that's the one that accounts for more than 50% mm-hmm. of Alzheimer's. Um, and APOE4 is part of a family yeah. of, of uh, apolipoprotein uh, um, uh, components. Uh, there's APOE2, APOE3, APOE4, and then there's a whole slew of others. It's so fascinating to see Sorry. that the apolipoproteins, they are, they're essentially, there's almost an, an evolutionary change in how apolipoprotein is expressed in our bodies. And when you look at the literature, um, these are found in all kinds of animals too, yes. primarily in aquatic animal and land-dwelling vertebrates. Interestingly, it's not found in birds. It's found in crocodiles, but not in birds. And they are thinking about 
you know, the reason why birds don't have a really good mechanism of metabolizing cholesterol or cholesterol doesn't really affect their body as much as it does for mammals is because of the lack of ApoE oh, plus proteins. So I was actually kind of going into a rabbit hole of understanding the, the history behind it and how we actually uh, started understanding this better. But like you mentioned the amyloid hypotheses and the tau hypotheses mm -hmm. and how that drives um, Alzheimer's disease, we now know the impact, the profound impact of apolipoproteins on the body and how it actually, yeah. you know, it is, it changes things as far as development of Alzheimer's disease is concerned. We've learned quite a bit. Now, um, maybe we can actually start by just giving a little bit of description of how APOE, the different types of APOEs yeah. actually interact with each other and what are they responsible for? Yeah, so the so APOE2, APOE3, and APOE4. Um, so APOE2, uh, from a 20,000 foot, uh, perspective, when you look at population studies, APOE2s seem to be protective. That's right. Well, for generally speaking, there are some varieties that, that cause uh, lipid abnormalities as well, but for totality, APOE2s have a significantly lower risk of dementia. That's right. In fact, a significant lower risk of cardiovascular disease as well. Now, maybe I should actually start questioning <clears throat> here as well, because it's relevant. So if someone has a copy of APOE2, yeah. and we know that APOE4 increases the risk of Alzheimer's disease, is the APOE2 protective? Does that actually negate the harm of having APOE4? There seems to be some element of that, yes. So if you have one copy of APOE2 and then one copy of APOE4, which uh, we will talk about the APOE4's risk, there seems to be a cancellation. In fact, the APOE2 seems to be pretty strong as far as its protective effect. And here's a, I'm, I'm going to titillate you guys, uh, because some of you might have heard some of this stuff. Our view has changed with data a little bit in the sense that up to recently, we thought that there was absolutely no value outside of research of doing uh, genetic testing. But there is some evidence, again, it's not strong evidence, that maybe knowing your APOE status will actually have consequences as far as how you will how diligent you will be with uh, with lifestyle, but even with supplements, and yeah. we'll get to that. That right. should keep you for the rest of the conversation. So, so mm -hmm. I just threw it in, and you, you just have to stay till the end to, to hear it. But, but it's it's really interesting, and and we're doing the genetic testing for ourselves, um, and it has consequences as far as even supplementation and things of that nature. All right, the different versions of APOE yes. are APOE two. APOE3 and APOE4. Correct. And there's a rare APOE1 as well, which we really don't know how it works. Yes. And it is so rare that we don't have enough people to actually study it in. Um, and like you said, um, the APOE3, let's talk about APOE3. We talked about the protective effect of APOE2. APOE3 version becomes, uh, it, it is probably the most dominant version yeah, and um, I think it's according to data, it says that it is dominant because individuals with that version had longer and healthier lives, and so it benefited their offsprings. And so you see ApoE three more in in human population. That's a great point because most of the time we think that if we have an abnormal gene, it was an error and and it, it just stayed with us. 
it served a purpose. Most of the time, it served a purpose. For example, sickle cell. Mm -hmm. uh, sickle cell anemia, which is a disorder found in African Americans or in, in Africa as well, is a disorder where the blood vessel, uh, the red blood cells actually sickle, become abnormal, and it causes significant pain and sometimes infarcting in the uh, ends of the vessels, and sometimes even strokes. Um, and it's such a painful thing to see. And it's a, actually, again, a single gene disorder that can be potentially fixed. But why would so many people suffer from sickle cell? Well, it serves a purpose because in Africa, it's presumed because there was a lot of malaria. Um, um, this actually protected or uh, individuals from death from malaria. The number one cause of death in the world was malaria and still is malaria. Mm -hmm. And um, so it protected people because the malarial larva would not survive in these conditions. Right. So the person would suffer from sickling, but then yet they would still survive from uh, malaria. Exactly. So it served a purpose. And all of these genes, even the ones that in today's world seem aberrant, uh, served their purpose in, in, uh, during their evolution. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and as a matter of fact, there's data, and there were actually some papers that we came across that said it's, it's hypothesis that ApoE4 is specifically, uh, it plays a very important role in, in immune uh, function yes. when infections uh, were a significant threat to, to humanity. And uh, the research on uh, Simani people, you know, Simani people have ApoE4, the highest uh, uh, percentage of ApoE4, yes. but they also have the lowest um, prevalence of Alzheimer's disease. And they suggested that ApoE4 may have helped them preserve their cognitive function during high parasite burden compared Correct. to those who had ApoE3. <clears throat> so you see these populations that have, you know, higher uh, prevalence of a particular type of ApoE4. And that's why you get to see particular patterns of diseases yes. in that population too. Absolutely. It's fascinating. Yeah. So so definitely the natural selection had a role in it as well. J just as a little summary, I wanted to actually go over this, the genetic component. You have the single gene disorders that which I talked about, which is sickle cell. I mean, sorry, Huntington's disease, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy is a single cell caused by a mutation in the DMD gene, particular place, uh, sickle cell anemia. We talked about it. And then cystic fibrosis. Then you have the multi-gene or complex disorders. These Diseases are influenced by variation in multiple genes working together and things like type 2 diabetes, heart disease, breast cancer, where BRAC1 and BRAC2 are involved with other uh, genes. Uh, then you have chromosomal disorders, and those are massive disorders. One of the common ones is Down syndrome, yes. where you have, yeah. instead of two copies of chromosome 21, you have three copies. By the way, patients, uh, people with Down syndrome also have much higher risk of dementia and Alzheimer's as they get older in their 40s and 50s. Why? Because APP, which is um, uh, this trans uh, membrane protein, uh, is on chromosome 21. Mm -hmm. So triple copies, more risk of disease. That's right. And uh, then you have mitochondrial disorders, which are very, very unusual. Very Remember unusual. in our boards, yeah. those are the ones that gets us. They have the, okay. uh, the red fiber abnormalities, eye abnormalities, muscle abnormalities, energy abnormalities, like Milos, Kern, Sayers, and mitochondrial. And then, the, um, uh, and then we talked about the epigenetic phenomenon which is uh, the Rett syndrome and, and certain types of cancer and Alzheimer's. And the epigenetics, which is a bigger category, I, I wanted to kind of characterize so people can see the differential, the genetic uh, the, the distribution and manifestation. 
Um, Alzheimer's is mostly an epigenetic phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, we would say more than 90%. That's where we came up with this extrapolation that under ideal, under perfectly ideal conditions, which is impossible, but more than 90% of Alzheimer's could be prevented, not reversed, prevented. So, um, and because it's epigenetic. Yeah, absolutely. So we can go into the uh, APOE3. So APOE3, on the other hand, is a wash. Mm -hmm. It doesn't increase risk or decrease risk. It's um, uh, it's uh, much less risk than uh, than APOE4, and it's slightly greater risk than APOE2. Yeah, yeah. and 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 it's a, a very fairly common uh, allele as well. Right. All right. So um, let's talk about. I think it, I, I would like to actually go into the details of how this is this all is created. You know, how yeah. does it how does it come into being? Uh, we discussed the different versions of ApoE4. Now, there are different types of cells in the brain that produce ApoEs or apolipoproteins. Correct. Um, but the dominant one that produces is, uh, are the astrocytes. But you can actually see microglia and oligodendrocytes and some neurons creating uh, apolipoproteins as well. And these are made in the endoplasmic reticulum. They're processed in the Golgi apparatus, and then they're extruded outside of the cell. And uh, essentially what they are supposed to do is they're supposed to be carriers for cholesterol yeah. molecule. And then at times it gets glycosylated, which means a glucose molecule actually gets attached to it as well. And it's between the interaction of how much cholesterol it carries, how it gets glycosylated by a glucose molecule is how it affects our vascular health and how it affects the process of getting rid of abnormal proteins for our body, yeah. aka the process of Alzheimer's disease and amyloid deposition, et cetera, that, that's where the process is actually affected. And so as far as um, functionality is concerned, it seems that ApoE4 is just not good enough to carry cholesterol and remove cholesterol mm -hmm. from the circulation. It's, you know, just basically the black sheep of apolipoproteins. Yeah. ApoE2 does a good job. ApoE3 is a wash, but ApoE4 doesn't really do a very good job. It doesn't. And, and you know, going into some of the details, we basically have studies that have looked at specific types of receptors that ApoE4 binds to. We've actually looked at the process of glycosylation. We've actually looked at multiple different conditions, whether it's insulin resistance or diabetes or high blood pressure and how that interacts with ApoE4. And we've come to a conclusion based on the evidence that we have is that when people have a copy of ApoE4 mm -hmm. or two copies of ApoE4, they are at a higher risk of having trouble keeping their arteries healthy. And it's not just Alzheimer's. No. <clears throat> it's vascular diseases across the board as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And th at the same time, there are certain things that actually helps ApoE4 do a better job. For example, we have studies that, have sh that show us that when people exercise, and when brain-derived neurotrophic factor is, is created, they essentially stimulate specific receptors in our livers, our liver, which is called liver X receptor, LXR. Yeah. They stimulate these receptors in the liver to increase apolipoprotein production, so you have more of it, and it actually grabs onto the cholesterol and removes it by different cells and especially by astrocytes in our brain. Exactly. So when you exercise, you actually create more receptors, the very thing that 
apolipoprotein E4 doesn't do very well. So yeah, it's not all doom and gloom. And when we say that when you have apolipoprotein E4, you know, 50% of the population never develop any Alzheimer's disease. Why? Because they have created these internal mechanisms to fight against the uh, the lack of capacity or the inability of apolipoprotein E4 to do a good job. And and here's some more on that titillation that I said earlier. Transport of omega-3s across the blood-brain barrier through the MFSD2A receptor yes. is affected or is, is different for APOE4 versus APOE2. Yeah. And yeah. remember that the most important fat for your brain, if the only important fat, are omega-3, specifically DHA and EPA, specifically DHA more than any, but, but definitely both of them. And this receptor is affected by that omega-3. And by the way, exercise and other things that we'll talk about also affects the receptor pre- prevalence in the uh, blood-brain barrier. It's fascinating. Really? It's fascinating. So not only does it not do a good job, it actually affects other things across the board. Across the board too, and it makes them not do a better job. Correct. There's another receptor that I was studying. Um, it's called the ATP binding cassette transporter, ABCA1. It's a, it's a long acronym, but essentially these are receptors that are on our cell membranes. And they're involved in so many different things, but one of the important jobs that they have is they help cholesterol go in and out of the cell, right? So APOE4 makes this ABCA receptor, it basically just nullifies its its, its effect. It, It doesn't let it help transport cholesterol out of the cell. And when there is a lot of cholesterol inside the cell, it starts getting damaged. Yes. Yeah. So the reason we're going into the depth of this, you got, you, you're, uh, we've, uh, you're incredibly savvy population, then we want to kind of go into the nuance of these things. So when, when in social media, they just say, this is good, this is bad. And, and it, it's, it doesn't only not satisfy the science, it doesn't do anything as far as the nuance that with which we have to approach this. That yeah. the fact that how these things work and the fact that um, uh, that um, uh, that um, uh, APOE4 is not just for Alzheimer's, but for your vascular disease. And it's exactly. not just because of the uh, fa- its relationship with fat or lipids, but also with sugar and glycosylation as well. It, it's uh, the complex interplay of that. And, and then at the same time, when you are observant of those things, you significantly lower the detrimental effect of APOE4. Exactly. Significantly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic. So before we go into the good news, let me kind of just go over some of the detrimental things that are seen in individuals who have APOE4. And I think we've already known that. We we, we touched on it lightly. So increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, People who have APOE4. By 12 times. By 12 times. If you have two genes. Exactly. And about 2% of the population have both genes. They have both two APOE4s. Yeah. And about 15% of the population has uh, one or two copies correct. of APOE4. Is that correct? Correct. Number? Yeah. Well, at least one. At least one. Yes, absolutely. And then um, it also increases the risk of vascular um, impairment or vasculopathies, whether it's in our circulatory system uh, or whether it's in the brain. It just affects how cholesterol metabolism uh, occurs in our circulation and it affects our endothelium. Um, etc. So people who have APOE4 and they're not aware of it and they don't take care of themselves have a higher risk of having heart attacks, strokes, and 
uh, mortality is higher um, as far as cardiovascular diseases are concerned. So that's been seen. It also, um, they also have a tendency of having immune issues. Immunity is affected significantly in individuals with ApoE4. So they actually have higher levels of inflammatory markers. So high sensitivity CRP, and their homocysteine and some other interleukin factors actually tend to be higher as well. As you can see, well, this is why we're kind of leaning towards maybe knowing your APOE, APOE status because it has consequences across the board. Absolutely. And it's not just a higher level of awareness and, and urgency, but also there is some, some now just recently some evidence that you can do something about it. Absolutely. <clears throat> can I actually mention a couple of other things of as well in my way for? There have been studies that it has some detrimental effects on the integrity of the blood-brain barrier. Yeah. So when blood-brain barrier integrity is affected, there's more deposition of heavy metals and things of that nature in the brain as well. And finally, it also impairs synaptic plasticity. So neuroplasticity or the capacity of the neuron to make connections seems to be lower in people who have not addressed their risk factors in the presence of APOE4. So it really does affect a lot of things across Mm -hmm. the board. All right, so so that's what we know as far as their effect is concerned. And Skipper agrees. He says, interesting that you should mention the motivational aspect of genetic testing. That's consistent with my own experience in that knowing my type, APOE44, has been an extremely powerful motivator. Um, and yeah, and that's absolutely true. So um, as far as um, let's jump in and talk about uh, the vascular contribution to Alzheimer's disease is concerned. As you said, Dean, earlier. The, the amyloid and the tau uh, hypotheses have been the main drivers of moving forward the research in Alzheimer's fields, and we've learned more about it. And all of these new medications that are coming out, they're targeting the amyloid protein or tau protein. Mm-hmm. But as far as uh, the vascular um, contributions are concerned, there's there's multiple long-term, multiple lines of different um, you know, aspects of studies, whether it's clinical uh, trials, whether it's observational studies for a very long time and populations well controlled for uh, different, um, you know, confounding factors shows us that when people have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, or even insulin resistance, they're at a higher risk of having Alzheimer's disease as well. So in individuals with ApoE4, those are the things that we can actually have control over. Let's talk about testing. So we've changed our minds about testing. And we would uh, we would um, encourage people to know their APOE4 status. I, I mean, it's not a must, but but uh, for those that are, are motivated and, and want to know, because a recent paper came out, by the way, you know our stance on, on a single paper. Even if it's the greatest paper, it has to be duplicated. It has to be, um, uh, you know. Um, uh, done by somebody else who uh, third uh, another party that has no connection and has no interest personal interest to do the same thing and with the same outcomes but the data showed that people with apoe4 actually do well at a much higher dose of omega-3 so um uh, and and that's not inconsequential because not everybody can be on high dose of omega-3 not and 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 as far as treatment is concerned that is an option that we must take into consideration so um, if you have APOE4, then there appears to be, again, preliminary data. It will be repeated, hopefully, uh, that they might have to be on a higher dose of omega-3. They have to take uh, keep a, a closer eye on their uh, um, LDL cholesterol yeah. much um, at much greater um, uh, level. 
I, I wanted to add something um, with regards to omega-3. The reason they, the reason the studies show us that people with ApoE4, a copy or two copies of ApoE4 need more omega-3 is because ApoE4, uh, it affects the transport of DHA into the cell. So, yes. that, so it actually affects the, um, the receptors. And uh, more of it actually creates, or it's almost like a feedback mechanism where you actually have more receptors for it to be introduced into the cell. And uh, one of the reasons why most of the studies in the past have failed, failed in, the, in, in terms of why hasn't omega-3 supplementation not slowed down the process of cognitive decline or prevented cognitive decline in population was because the, the dose was quite low. Mm -hmm. And they never, they never um, um, you know, divided the population into APOE4 versus non-APOE4, but now we're doing that. And in our own review, the biggest limitation was that the studies were not well designed as far as dosage and dose escalation was concerned. Exactly. And, and you, a lot of times in, in research, we failed studies because of inappropriate dosing. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So the latest studies have shown that um, uh, typically people with ApoE4 tend to do much better with at least a gram of DHA, which is the main, you know, poof or polyunsaturated fatty acid in the brain. 57% of our brain is made of DHA. So it seems that a higher dose of closer to one gram or even more. Even more. But, but, but here's the, the rub, though. Um, this is not without consequence. So if Absolutely. you're going to go at a higher dose of gram or more, or even below that, you should definitely do this under the supervision of your physician because some people have bleeding disorders. It's rare, but it's there. And th they can have significant consequences. So be aware of uh, side effects potentially and do so under the supervision of your physician. Exactly. Or clinician. Um, and Sarah is, is uh, commenting here, actually questioning, and that's a very good question. She said, I was wondering whether we should all be following the advice directed for people who have the ApoE4 gene or would certain things be detrimental? For example, can you have too much EPA? I know that it can cause cardiovascular issues or atrial fibrillation. If you have it in excess, yeah. it would be really helpful to hear that. That's why uh, doing so under uh, uh, you know, um, um, supervision of a, of a clinician is important. Uh, the, the AFib story is actually... Um, uh, yeah, there was research that showed that, but it's actually not as prevalent. It, sh it should definitely be uh, uh, something to be in the back of your mind. But like I said, if you are being observed by your physician, not just for the AFib component, which is a smaller component, but, but for bleeding disorders and others, um, that should all should be taken into consideration. Yeah, absolutely. And though, uh, they're asking about specific or, uh, you know, uh, venues that can do the testing, I think 23andMe is one of them. And yeah. you can actually get it done in the clinic under the supervision of a doctor as well if they're open to doing it. Correct, right? yeah. correct. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Unfortunately, it's not covered under insurance, so it would be an out-of-pocket pay. Correct. Right. So, um, so, so, so moving forward, um, you know, we have, we had this big hoopla about Chris Hemsworth, that one actor who was on a documentary in, um, on uh, National Geographic's and, um, you know, he publicly announced that he had APOE4 genes and this whole conversation and this, almost this, this understanding uh, of 
the APOE4's relationship with Alzheimer's disease kind of, you know, it, it, it's so funny how Hollywood and, you know, some TV shows actually blow up the concept and everybody got really concerned. And we feel that there's been a lot of misinformation that has been spread along with that piece of information too. Um, and coming to um, the preventive measures, you know, when somebody comes back with a copy or two copies of APOE for what should they do? Let's talk about that and clarify some misunderstandings. So yes, APOE4 does affect our cholesterol metabolism, um, and it is specifically LDL cholesterol. Um, people who have APOE4 tend to have higher LDLs even during their midlife, mm -hmm. and it continues to go higher and be uncontrolled as, as they age because the aging process also affects our LDL metabolism. And it's, it's incredibly important for, for different lifestyle measures, whether it's diet, um, exercise, stress management, all of those need to be instituted as early as possible. But at the same time, also have an open mind and room to discuss specific types of situations where lifestyle will not help people. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about diet. Now, as far as diet is concerned, cutting down saturated fats and making changes to lower LDL cholesterol is crucial. Yeah, that 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 goes across the board. Right. That's not questionable. Yeah. And how is that done with diet alone? Well, specifically cutting out on sources of saturated fats that usually come from red meat, processed meats, high fat dairy products, um, tropical oils such as coconut and palm oil. Uh, those need to be reduced or eliminated as much as possible. Um, now there's a little bit of, um, well, it's not a misunderstanding, but it's lack of very hard evidence around that. And Dean and I have been actually going back and forth and he's been reading and I, I we've both been reading. Um, so far, I think the understanding of adding polyunsaturated fatty acids to our diet when we have APOE4, that's questionable. There are some papers and especially from uh, Dr. Yassin, uh, Yassin's lab at USC, and he's been studying APOE4 and the effect of diet on it. It seems that when you increase your polyunsaturated fatty acid intake, which comes from nuts and seeds and extra virgin olive oil, the, um, the, uh, the receptors that will help us reduce our LDL increases because the impact that polyunsaturated fat has is, is, is very important and we have to maintain it. So cutting out all fat may not be the best thing to do. Uh, yes, reduction of saturated fat is important, but also making sure that we consume polyunsaturated fat is important. So eating more nuts and seeds, avocados, and maybe perhaps even adding good quality extra virgin olive oil in our diet may be helpful. Where we, we don't differ in this idea, but where we uh, kind of uh, are on the edges, uh, the, uh, my take on this, and I think yours as well in many ways, is that we haven't figured out the quantity of uh, the quantitative um, um, recommendations are not strong yet. And quantitative recommendation given people's risks and epigenetics is definitely not there yet. So um, we, 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 we speak of that in, in humility. Science is, is a humble field. And when we don't know, we say we don't know. I mean, uh, human yeah. tendency is to have certainty. We don't know certain things. Uh, we definitely don't agree with a lot of people that it's zero fat. Well, that there's no, I mean, to be honest, the data out there is just incredibly weak. 
Um, I, we, we've gone over that many times and we'll go over it many other times. But how much is a complex um, a, a piece of information that needs to be better elucidated and it's being done? Uh, but but at the minimum minimum amounts of you know um, uh, poly and monounsaturated fats is something that should be introduced. Uh, the upper end of it is not well known. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, there was a there was a conversation between um, a few nutritionists that you know that are that are respectable and they 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 really know their field very well and they were essentially saying that in cardiovascular diseases and when you look at uh, observational studies, it seems that saturated fats effect on LDL metabolism is so strong that, um, you know, making sure that you balance that with the addition of polyunsaturated fat is very important. Um, so we'll know more about that. And hopefully we can actually go into an in-depth conversation about that balance between saturated and unsaturated fatty acids in a diet. And the reason why mind and Mediterranean diet, even though it's not a low-fat diet, seems to be more beneficial compared to a diet that has no fat for Alzheimer's prevention is concerned. I mean, that also provides some level of evidence that inclusion of polyunsaturated fat is important in, in, uh, in our diet. The epigenetics of all this will be better elucidated with the, at the age of um, where we are now, which is large data analysis. Yeah. Um, so that, that's going to be done. The other thing is that the epigenetic phenomenon of understanding certain genes, the TREM ones, the the uh, um, APOE4s, and and so many uh, so many other epigenetic uh, variable genes that are incredibly important for our health, it, we think that within the next five years we'll be able to kind of personalize uh, the genetic um, um, picture of a person's disease risk uh, fairly clearly. And and, uh, and so that's kind of exciting as well. It really is. All right. So let's talk about physical exercise. Yes. Uh, physical exercise uh, effect on uh, APOE4 is, has also been studied significantly. Uh, and as I mentioned in earlier, in every way, in yes. every way, as I mentioned earlier, um, it essentially, you know, through BDNF and through some other vascular phenomenon, it affects how APOE4 metabolizes uh, LDL uh, cholesterol. And we all know that when people exercise, you actually metabolize LDL much better mm -hmm. and your LDL reduces significantly. So the combination of diet with exercise is a powerful way to reduce our risk of vascular uh, diseases. Including the blood-brain barrier. The effect of exercise on the receptors of the blood-brain barrier is just remarkable. Absolutely. The fact that the availability of, of uh, omega-3s in the brain, which is the most important fat, I'm going to keep saying that, is, uh, is determined by how you exercise because that affects the receptors, that affects uh, the, um, uh, um, the effect of um, recovery of the blood-brain barrier is just, just bewildering. Most of the time, we thought that exercise was just about getting the heart to beat faster so that there was more blood flow. Mm -hmm. um, and, but it's uh, effect of uh, exercises on BDNF, on receptors in the brain, on glucose receptors, on insulin receptors, on, on uh, uh, um, transmembrane receptors in the blood-brain barrier. Across the board, exercise is probably one of the most powerful tools you have Absolutely. to increase all, to improve all of those. As a matter of fact, um, you, you know, when we talk about delta or change from baseline, um, in populations who have APOE4, the change from baseline to improvement is always magnified compared to other APOE um, variants. Correct. 
So say, for example, if you separate a population into APOE4 variants versus APOE2 variants, and they're both exposed to the same intervention of, say, I'm just, I'm just making up a study here of diet and exercise, APOE4 populations will actually show more benefit mm -hmm. and they will slow down their cognitive decline more than APOE2 does because of this massive effect of the change in vasculature and the change in LDL metabolism and the change in production of compounds that keep our arteries and our brain healthy ultimately, which is yeah. phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And you see this over and over again in multiple studies where the, the APOE4 population tend to benefit more from any intervention. Yeah, which is incredibly, as Skip was talking because of his own uh, personal story, uh, incredibly motivating. Exactly. To know that not only do you have an influence, but you have much more of an influence because of your risk. Exactly. Yeah. Because of the risk. You're Correct. absolutely right. We can ask some questions as well. Absolutely. So we're going to go to the, to the questions as well. And let's see. So, um, as as far as the type of test or the different uh, companies are concerned, I think you know you can do your own research. Most of them are legitimate, I think. Correct, correct. Um, yeah, now especially now. Absolutely. And then uh, Paula says, "What is considered a higher dose of omega three? I mean, as we suggested, as we discussed, you know, up to a gram and higher than that is considered good right. enough or or appropriate. But of course, that needs to be." That needs to be made, uh, you know, you need to make a decision with the help of your physician or your healthcare provider to make sure that you don't have any other risk factors. All right. Um, all right. Let's see. Um, so Skip actually um, t is, is telling that he did the genealogy as well. It counts for different things. Um, uh, Clarissa says... Um, I have APOE4. Um, if one has APOE4 and is vegan, swims one to two miles a day, does strength training, gardened a lot um, of my produce year round, and takes lots of daily walks, long and short with uh, my dog, are those enough for quality of life? If, if from the data, from population-based data, it appears that is definitely the case. The, the effect of your lifestyle is significant when it comes to APOE4. Right. That's not always the case if you have, I mean, first of all, uh, Huntington's is a rare, rare disease. But if, if you have Huntington's, no matter what you do, you're not going to change the course. In this case, it's absolutely the opposite. Your lifestyle does have a significant consequence on outcome when it comes to APOE4. So true. Skip says, speaking of Chris Hemsworth, what other recommendations he adopted do you believe make sense? For instance, I am not motivated to take a cold shower every day. That's very interesting uh, that you mentioned that. Now we were going to talk about that. Um, sadly, there's really no evidence for cold showers. I mean, we went back and forth and we've been holding ourselves to see why is it that humongous influencers and scientists that are on TikTok and on Instagram just keep on um, talking about ice baths and cold showers and what is this cold exposure? really no solid evidence. Have you come across anything, Dave? No, it's the same uh, logical fallacy where we, we, we take a concept that makes slight sense and we extrapolate it to its infinite uh, 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 possibilities. Mm -hmm. So the, the concept of hermesis, you know, the, the idea that you challenge the body. Um, um, and Small stress that small, doesn't make you sick, but challenges your body to become stronger. Yeah, so that's the idea. So they take that concept and then they extrapolate from there. That's the problem with logic out uh, and TikTok logic or TikTok 
philosophy or TikTok um, uh, science. Uh, there's incredible extrapolation. We're not against extrapolation as a first step of science, but not the last step of science. Agreed. In fact, even the last step of science, there's no such thing. That should be challenged. They should be repeated and so on and so forth. But the idea of saunas and ice baths, yeah, there's some data, but it's weak data and, and it's uh, very myopic data and it's a biased data. And, and then even beyond that, long-term data does not exist. Yeah. Um, so uh, there are these people who make these claims have difficulty may accepting epidemiological population-based data that are incredibly well done in 600,000 and a million, you know, and and uh, in, in, in Scandinavian countries or in, in United States and um, uh, average health study or California teachers study, 100,000 people, they have difficulty taking data from populations like that. But when it's a soft data from a population in Finland that says ice baths or saunas, saunas that makes sense to them. Why? Because it doesn't take, it doesn't change their lifestyle too much from their eating patterns and all of that. It's a heroic act that's going to give you a big return. That's always been a driver, whether it's true or not. You know, if you um, uh, and um, and and <clears throat> and ultimately, uh, it, there's not much s strong data. I was about to make a big claim, but I'm sorry, <laughs> I got in trouble. You're kind. Yeah, you know, throwing virgins into the fire. I guess I went there anyway. It was <laughs> an incredible sacrifice. So it must have an outcome. Nope, it didn't. And also, you know, there are a lot of people, uh, no, not even people, they're actually, the articles say that cold showers and cold exposure was associated with the feeling of vigor and energy and, um, you know, um, improved mood. Just because something makes you feel good, I mean, right, go go ahead and do it, but don't say that it's actually reducing your risk of any particular disease. Belong, uh, prolonging your life. Right. A piece of cake makes me feel really good, yes, but it's it does. not necessarily good for you. <laughs> but long term, though, there's no data. I mean, we're we're welcoming that, but right, there's no data. But the things that that do work is significant exercise. I think there's a I forget his name. Um, there's this gentleman who actually started this whole movement. Why am I forgetting his name? Um, but it, Wim Wim Wim. Oh, yeah. Ice uh, Ice Man. Yeah, yeah. Winhoff. Winhoff. Yes, Winhoff. Yes, and you know he's. He ha has been, you know, he he volunteered to be studied, uh, but that's an N of one. Correct. So we need a larger population and we need this to be replicated. For example, you know, the Finnish study that showed that people who go, at, who do saunas on a regular basis have, what, 65% lower risk of Alzheimer's dementia? dementia. Yeah. I mean, I would love for that to be replicated in San Bernardino, Yeah. right? Uh, only then we can actually tell and, and see whether it makes sense or not. All right. Holly says, is ADD or ADHD genetic or is it considered epigenetic, whereas lifestyle can turn it on and off? Uh, there seems to be greater um, um, data towards epigenetics. Right. Yeah. Sandra says, do you know if decreasing saturated fat is recommended for lipoprotein A? So lipoprotein A uh, is very difficult to lower. I mean, it, it definitely has a genetic underpinning. And it seems that diet doesn't really affect it significantly. Yeah. So there were studies that showed niacin potentially, but that's not very strong and not everybody can tolerate niacin. Uh, diet might in, in, in particular cases, but we haven't figured out what those cases are. It's a very recalcitrant um, yeah. anomaly that has, um, it's difficult to change. And, and by the way, the sad, the bad part is that it's also higher, it's been associated with higher risk of cardiovascular disease. Right. So basically, 
Um, though in those situations, I think it's important to talk to a physician and keep LDL as low as possible. And a combination of some micronutrients and some statins actually, uh, you know, help people do better as far as their management is concerned. And keeping a tra- keeping an eye on your cardiovascular right. status, be it the calcium f- um, score and things of that nature. Yeah, I've, I've spoken with a lot of my cardiology friends and they basically say, we just leave it alone. And we try to focus on the things that we can control, which is LDL, blood pressure, glucose metabolism, et cetera. All right. Um, Carol says, please define epigenetics. Beautiful. So um, uh, epigenetics, as the name implies, is anything that's interplay between genes and environment. Um, um, uh, Anything that affects your genes and, 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 and those genes that are amenable or interact with the environment as their final outcome. That's the, 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 the softest definition of epigenetics. Clarissa says, what blood tests are beneficial for vegans for dementia or Alzheimer's risk level per se? I think um, whether you're a vegan or not vegan, you know, there are certain uh, uh, tests that need to be done on a regular basis. And I think we've shared that. Um, you, they're, they're vitamin B12, vitamin B6, B1, folic acid, vitamin D. Um, and then markers of cholesterol and glucose metabolism. Mm-hmm. So there's a list of things thyroid that need to be checked. Yes, thyroid and hormone lipids. as well. Yeah, and you can find that in the homepage. Paula says, are there certain types of nuts and seeds that are better than others for purpose of adding polyunsaturated fats? Um, yes, I think alpha linoleic acid and flax, uh, hemp and chia seeds seem to be very, very healthy. And beyond even their conversions to DHA and EPA, uh, people who eat a lot of alpha linoleic acid and the other compounds that are found in these seeds are incredibly healthy. Uh, one of the salient features of the Mediterranean diet was the fact that it was high in ALA. So uh, flax, chia, hemp are great. Walnuts have been studied. Those are phenomenal. Walnuts seems to be um, to have the highest amount of uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids, more omega-3 than omega-6. So, so, so those are great. Bijan says, so you mean all my morning cold showers have been in vain? <laughs> I have to say, I do feel feel really good afterwards. So it's all, is it all psychological? It, again, and we said data. We don't, it could be more than that, but so far there's no data. And it's like, who says psychological is bad? Yeah, yeah, that's true. If you feel invigorated and fresh, and, uh, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah, great. Um, Greta says, should we rather take a supplement that has exclusive DHA and no EPA so we don't get the negative effects of EPA? I don't, I don't think that there's negative effects of EPA. As a matter of fact, in cardiovascular diseases, the first supplement that was, um, that was approved by FDA as a prescription medication was high doses of EPA. Yeah. They give high doses of EPA for people who have, um, uh, coronary calcium, um, who have uh, vasculopathies, and it tend to reduce their risk of having heart attacks and strokes significantly. Not strokes, heart attacks only. So um, I don't think we should be concerned about EPA. Yeah, but again, always, I, I'm going to repeat it, I, I'll always check with your physician and your own condition, your own situation. Absolutely. Um, all right, so w- when somebody comes in with um, a copy or two copies of um, ApoE4 Dean in the clinic, does your... I'm actually asking you so you can explore that. Mm-hmm. Does your management of the patient differ from someone who does not have ApoE4? Management of the patient, no. My conversation, of course, it has to change a little bit by telling them. It's almost like uh, somebody who comes in with microvascular disease of the brain. 
versus one who doesn't. Um, with somebody who comes in with microvascular disease of the brain and say, you have risk, you already have, or with high blood pressure for that matter. You already have high blood pressure, you have microvascular disease in the brain. This can actually progress to become dementia. You have to have greater awareness. You have to be at greater, uh, um, uh, observe your risk profiles due to everything necessary to reverse your risk or reduce your risk significantly. Same thing with APOE4. Not that I don't do it with APOE2. My sense of urgency and the language and the cadence and the and 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 the tone I use become a little more urgent and it's uh, and it's uh, take. And now I even uh, talk about uh, omega three, saying you might need if I know them well, if I know their bleeding status and all their blood biomarkers and everything else. I would say if you're not on omega three, start taking omega three. Even if you're ta- if, even if you're eating fish or whatever, take omega threes and and if need be even higher dose. Absolutely. Okay. I hope that was helpful, Britta, because I know that you actually asked this question on the main page as well. So please type in whatever whatever questions you have. Linda says, I live in Germany and it's not really talked about here. Are there standard genetic tests which include many or all health-related genes or just tests for specific genes? What do I ask for? Um, I think, I don't think there's a panel of any sort, Linda, that, you know, um, looks at genetic risks for some of the more common diseases. I think you should ask for specific ones. Um, and for this one, I think for, you know, as it, as it relates to Alzheimer's disease and dementia, APOE4 would be a good one to ask for. Uh, Sandra says there's a large camp of professionals who think cholesterol is just fine and have all been deceived. Atherosclerosis isn't a fat deposition. They are militant. Aren't the studies pretty conclusive? They are, Sandra. I think um, all of these large camps who think that having high cholesterol is fine, uh, they're going to be irrelevant because there's there's so much data that negates what they think. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think they don't come from a place where evidence is important for them. It almost becomes um, a clan of some sort, you know, like just a dogmatic way of thinking and then following that. Um, even, you know, from people who, um, um, who, who essentially don't address their LDLs, um, and they continue to live that way. We don't hear about the switches later on, but they've actually come back and said like, oh, they had heart attacks or they were, they got so sick, they almost died. And then they switched and they lowered the LDL and they got better. So, so we don't hear about those, but there are a lot of people who are becoming more and more aware, health aware. Uh, because of good data and because of good communication and more trust with um, healthcare providers. Correct. All right. I'm going to go ahead and uh, answer Anne's uh, question. Anne Caulfield on the main page said that, um, you know, um, that her partner and I, uh, my partner and I follow Nira as much as possible. Uh, and Michael, however, is showing some signs of memory challenges, her partner. Um, and we wonder if there's a scan that can give some indication of his brain health, perhaps a test for the gene, maybe a clue. So, so Anne, I think it would be important for Michael to be evaluated yes. for cognitive impairment, and it comes with its own set of tests. Correct. Do you want yeah. to talk about what no, that is? Absolutely. So imaging both MRI and uh, if, if in there your insurance covers PET scan, uh, neuropsychological testing, which uh, is very important because even at the very early stage, it gives you not just a deficit across the board, but specific types of deficits that give you a window into what the problem could be. Um, and then an assessment uh, of him to see if he's the, the changes that he's experiencing. So those three factors are 
incredibly helpful. And of course, the biomarkers, which are what, we, what Aisha has been talking about, which is the B12s and the uh, um, uh, thyroids and the lipids and the hemoglobin A1Cs and the vitamin Ds, all of those are important because they can actually exacerbate even at the lower normal level. Uh, but the imaging and the neuropsychological testing is, is imperative. Um, for those of you that know, we are starting the Brain Health Institute, so uh, um, and, and, uh, initially in 10 states and then nationally, so that's available. But other, other than that, you can see any doctor and they'll do the basic stuff, so yeah. Rebecca, I'll come back to your question later because it's related to something else in, in the page. Uh, Britta says, can you explain gene therapy in which APOE44 homozygous genes are switched or turned into APOE4 APOE2. and 2, yeah. 4 and 2? or 3-2 or 2-2. I read about a gene therapy trial for people 50 plus years old with APOE4-4. They want to replace one of the two APOE4 genes with an APOE2. However, I was wondering if artificially changing the gene really reduces the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And why would one, why would they only replace one and not both? I'm already following your lifestyle and she mentions everything yeah. that she's doing. So gene therapy is here. It will happen. It's not there in the market. Um, and, and even if it the people are purporting that it is, it's, it's false. It's almost like that PRP. Everybody's doing PRP, but nobody's really doing PRP. Um, uh, so uh, only in specific locations and specific situations are people doing PRP properly. Same thing with gene therapy. Gene therapy is not in the market. If it is, it's in the research labs and the clinical trials, and it's on, on single locus genes. Um, and they're, because it's experimental, they're, seeing, they're, they're making small changes to see effect. Uh, always uh, in medicine and research, do no harm precedes do good. Uh, that in, our, um, uh, in our oath, that's, that's the thing we talk about, which is do no harm first. So minimal effect, observing minimal effect to see if that's going to have an effect, change one gene or influence one gene and then see where, where we can go from there. Mm -hmm. uh, but we are in the precipice of a revolution of genetic modification that's going to be coming. Uh, I cannot wait. I don't care what people say. If they think they want to be natural, go tell, talk about natural uh, to a person who's going through Huntington's. Mm. I cannot wait for us to do genetic engineering with Huntington's disease, with, with sickle cell, with many other diseases ALS. that are ALS, which are devastating people and populations, and including Alzheimer's, if we can alter certain genes to lower risk by 20%, 30%, and, and across the board. Absolutely. In the meantime, lifestyle will be incredibly helpful. And even afterwards, lifestyle probably will add, uh, lifestyle will probably add to a final outcome. Absolutely. Um, so that's the, where we are with, with uh, the gene modification. Absolutely. And, uh, and since we first heard about CRISPR, oh my goodness, the field has moved up ahead so far and has become so much more efficient. And we're, we're very optimistic. Uh, of its outcomes within within the next few within the next decade or so. Absolutely. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us today and we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to stay up to date with future episodes, please subscribe and follow our podcast on Apple or Spotify and watch the recordings on our YouTube channel. We would appreciate you supporting this show with your review as it helps it reach more people. We look forward to connecting again in the next episode.